The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And again, welcome everyone. I just made it tonight. Those of you on the YouTube channel, those of you on Zoom, those here in the room, our beautiful community, beloved hybrid community, our new world. And uh, we're looking at the five faculties this summer in our Buddhist studies program. And uh, I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh likens it to uh, like a factory. Let's see if I can find this quote from him. The five faculties or bases are the power plants that help us generate this energy in ourselves. The five powers are the energy and action. The five faculties and powers are faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and insight. When practice has bases, they are like factories that produce electricity. When practice has powers, they have the capacity to bring about all the elements of the path, just as electricity manifests as light and heat. And uh, you might not have picked this up, but here he's translating as, instead of faculties, he's using the word bases. And um, when these five faculties or five bases get some momentum, they become powers, right? They dominate the mind, the heart, as opposed to, and we can check right now, what's dominating the mind, the heart, now? You know, maybe doubt or maybe superficiality or this or that. But, you know, maybe to some degree, hopefully, but often during the day, you know, our mind doesn't have this, the kind of, uh, you know, both samsara, the cycling of greed, hatred, and delusion, and suffering that comes from that. Samsara has a, a really, in a funny way, beautiful coherence. Like, it's an elegant manifestation of nature, how greedy mind, you know, operates, and in a way that keeps repeating, you know, keeps feeding the beast. It's same with aversion and fear and anxiety and all of the different psychological, emotional patterns that, you know, are strong in our personalities. But the opposite is also true. The awakening process has this same kind of can when the momentum, when it's cultivated, can have that same kind of beautiful feedback system, coherence, that it becomes, you know, and that's why they use this uh, shift in language from the five faculties or the five bases to the five powers, when there's, they're working, harmonizing together, balanced together, and it hums along. And, and hopefully, if not already, but hopefully some point in your practice, you'll sense this kind of spiritual effortlessness. Like you're not trying to be a good person or trying to be connected or trying to be awake or trying to be relaxed or 
It's like all of those beautiful qualities that any human being would agree are beautiful, wholesome qualities, they're just operating in a way that's cultivating and supporting all the other wholesome qualities. And it takes on a life of its own. And the interesting thing here, in terms of the edge, like the what's difficult for us as a practitioner when that's happening is to leave it alone. <laughs> because we still may have instincts like old habits that maybe in other situations would be skillful, but in this situation, we don't need to be the practitioner doing something. We need to be the practitioner trusting that the mind is dominated by these coherent, harmonizing, wholesome forces, that wisdom and awakening knows what it's doing. And so then what we do as a practitioner is we trust that the mind is dominated, the heart is dominated by wholesome qualities, and they know what they're doing. They're working together, and it isn't personal. It's beautiful, but it isn't personal. And we say the same thing, I hope, you know, it's actually nice when our mind is dominated by greed, hatred, and delusion, and all its cousins, you know, and we see just the coherence, and in a funny way, the beauty of that ignorance the deludedness of our mind, the lustfulness of our mind, the seeking revenge of our mind, and, and how it all makes sense from a certain point of view. It's coherent. It has its own sort of inner intelligence that makes sense within, you know, that bubble or whatever that constructed reality. And isn't it true we kind of see some aspect of our personality that's gotten triggered that's less than wholesome. And we can have that sense of humor, sense of appreciation, like, wow, that's really a beast. You know, that's a coherent beast, you know. And, and appreciating like we do anytime we some, see some aspect of nature rolling in, like weather rolling in or a raccoon in the backyard or whatever it might be that just sort of there's something, yeah, there's some integrity about nature, like there's something essential about nature that it knows what it's doing, right? That's why we like to be out in nature. I mean, it's, it's true here, even in, in our civilized, you know, metro areas, it's its own kind of coherence, but we don't pick that up. So I want to start off by reading just a couple paragraphs from Sharon Salzberg's book, just partly to give it a plug. I didn't put it in the resources, but you can track it down. Sharon, a while back, wrote a book, uh, the title is Faith, and then there's a subtitle I'm forgetting right now. Um, But it's really powerful, and it's part memoir, I mean, Sharon is really sharing um, her own life and the difficulties that were there, especially in her early life, and, uh, and how this uh, uncovering, this recognition of faith, faith in her experience, was just central to the healing and the powerful awakening that's happened in her life and 
how much good that Sharon has been able to put in, set in motion through the many years of teaching and writing. So this is right in the preface. Faith does not require a belief system, and it is not necessarily connected to a deity or God, though it doesn't deny one. This faith is not a commodity we either have or don't have. It's an inner quality that unfolds as we learn to trust our own deepest experience. The Buddha said, faith is the beginning of all good things. Now, do we have faith in that? (laughs) Because if we did, we'd get interested in confidence or conviction or faith or whatever words you want to use to point the mind to a potential that's here already. There's some natural capacity. We don't do faith. It doesn't work that way. Just like we don't do awareness. Be aware now. You know, it just doesn't work that way. You know, have faith now. It just makes us want to hit somebody when people, you know, you don't have faith. A lot of times that's that way. You know, if, if you're being honest with a friend, you know, and you're despairing or you're confused, they, I actually had a teacher once do this to me, literally grabbed me in a, in a practice meeting by the shirt. And kind of, I forget what they said, but basically said, you know, get your act together and have faith. <laughs> Some version of that. It's not helpful. <laughs> I mean, in a, in a roundabout way, it might be helpful. Like knowing what isn't helpful is helpful. Um, right, like we can't just manufacture faith, but we can be interested in faith, confidence, and we can be interested in awareness. And this seems to be true with a lot of the wholesome qualities that are essential on the path. It's about interest. It isn't about faking it until they become our own thing, you know. It's really about being interested in it and really calling ourselves out when we see that we have a lot of faith that it's not there, not having looked, not having been interested. I just don't, I just can't do this awareness thing. I just don't have any confidence in anything. You know, it's it's like, well, you seem to have a lot of confidence that you don't have confidence in anything. We don't look at that. Oh, I can't do this. Other people can do this. Or even confidence, this is stupid. This is really stupid. So why'd you sign up for the course? <laughs> well, I have a lot of... This, it's like, it's interesting what we kind of keep revisiting because we have confidence. It's like, like me, you know, in the news, reading about certain politicians doing certain things. So I bathe in the confidence that they're stupid or they're bad or whatever, you know? So we want to illuminate this whole world of confidence, conviction, faith, and really tease out the difference between belief or hope and what kind of, you know, whatever word we use, what is the quality, you know, I'll use the word faith, what is that quality of faith that is wholesome in the sense that it has an onward leading. It leads 
to engaging my life in a way that's onward toward learning and deepening, seeing what I haven't seen, realizing what I haven't realized, comprehending the way it is, not cognitively, intellectually, but in that intuitive sense. So faith is really that, what did uh, Saida say, I, I read last week, he says, faith, sadha, is the Pali word, that is that which wants to practice, right? So practice just means we're bringing that, we're bringing the heart to our experience with that conviction there's something here that hasn't been seen. As long as we're, and initially this is just borrowed faith, like, you know, the Buddha says basically, it's the not seeing things as they are that is the cause of suffering. It's the not being awake. I actually, uh, well, let me just finish this here and then I'll read this other thing. So I'll just reread this sentence. The Buddha said, faith is the beginning of all good things. And then Sharon writes, no matter what we encounter in life, it is faith that enables us to try again, to trust again, to love again, even in times of immense suffering. It is faith that enables us to relate to the present moment in such a way that we can go on we can move forward instead of becoming lost in resignation or despair. Faith links our present-day experience, whether wonderful or terrible, to the underlying pulse of life itself. A capacity for this type of faith is inherent in every human being. We might not recognize it or know how to nurture it, but we can learn to do both. And just as an example, like what we want to open to, because, you know, we can romanticize, idealize what we have faith in, you know, paint a picture. And, and we, our mind is such that if we have a powerful mind, imagining mind, constructing, conceiving mind, right, with thought, images, we can concoct something that is really beautiful, and really moves the heart in that sort of emotional, psychological sense. So it's important that we hear from everyone, you know, we pay attention, we check it out, because there's something aspirational in our confidence in our faith. So like faith in our experience, Right? And uh, we're not looking for something special. We're actually looking for something that's here but hasn't been recognized, fully recognized, comprehended, sensed. And this is from, uh, this is Gil Fransdell talking about a sutta in the Book of the Eights. He wrote, a, I think, a wonderful small book called The Buddha Before Buddhism. And one of the things that Gil Franzdahl, a really wonderful Buddhist scholar and insight meditation teacher from the West Coast, 
that he's into is, um, in terms of his scholarship, looking at the early Buddhist teachings and trying to, you know, because they've been around for 2,600 years, and, you know, these things get changed by culture and by just humans repeating it, and trying to, you know, through different academic means, get a sense of what are some of those teachings that might have actually been the way they are now back then. And the Book of Eights, because it got used even at the time of the Buddha, these teachings were repeated in the later decades of the Buddhist teachings. You know, you basically say to somebody, yeah, use this teaching, and that person would use this teaching in a way that lines up with this Book of Eights, these verses. And so uh, there's this character who's talking to the Buddha, Magandhya, and he's basically, you know, asking the Buddha, you know, are you attracted to these other people, you know, sexually? And the Buddha says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not into that anymore. And, uh, you know, I don't have that kind of lust for sensuality. And so then the, the person, you know, kind of wisely asks, well, what's the deal? Like, what is your life about then? <laughs> if it isn't about uh, interest in sensual pleasures, what's it about? And this is the Buddha's reply. He said that he didn't, and this is, you know, Gil is just uh, paraphrasing the Buddha's words. Uh, the Buddha replies that he does not pro- proclaim a doctrine. Instead, through not clinging to any doctrines or views, he has experienced inner peace. When Magandhya then asks what he means by inner peace, see, it's great, these people <laughs> being curious, like, what do you mean, inner peace? The Buddha doesn't answer directly. He says that those who are peaceful have no desire for states of becoming because they have let go, don't grasp, and aren't dependent on anything. In this way, the Buddha avoids talking about peace in terms of what is present, thus avoiding turning peace into a mental object one can strive for and cling to. So peace, what the Buddha realized, is the peace of not clinging to this. This experience, you and I, whatever, you know, it's not, we're not saying it's the same experience you're having that I'm having, but whatever experience we are having, it's the not clinging and the non-dependence on this that is the peace that the Buddha realized. So it's this minus any grasping, clinging, dependence. It's this human life without the grasping. It's the cessation of that grasping. So even if we're just vaguely comprehending that on an intellectual level, right? Then that interest, even on an intellectual level, might shape our um, faith and our experience, like, to check it out. Like, is that not grasping to this a value, meaningful to this heart? Let me check it out. And, and one of the things that 
you know, that motivates this checking it out. You know, there have been times in our life where we just have that that perspective um, in this. This is from Joseph Goldstein. He wrote a book with Jack Kornfield, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom, this long time ago. And they sort of wrote about a lot of the different maps, and they took turns writing each of the chapters. So Joseph, it was his turn to write the chapter on the five faculties, what we're studying this summer. And Joseph gives the example of uh, having been in Asia a lot. He was basically practicing in Asia from 19, I think, 67 until the early 70s, most of the time, you know, come back and work a little and then head back to Asia and practice. A lot of that was at the the, uh, Vihara, the place for Burmese pilgrims, Buddhist pilgrims, doing a pilgrimage at Bodh Gaya, which is the place of the Buddha's awakening in India. And they had a building and I think a lot of that time, for some reason, there weren't a lot of Burmese people. I forget what was going on in the late 60s in Burma, that there weren't that many pilgrims. So um, Munindaji, who was in charge of that Bahara, that house, allowed some of these Western young Westerners who were getting interested in Buddhism and meditation to practice there. And Joseph was one of those people. And... Um, yeah, and he talks about the, the, those years in Asia and uh, just the swirl, you know, just being in a place where there are a lot of people and and sometimes being an outsider, being, you know, someone traveling, not from that place, there's just that perspective of watching the scene, watching the dance, watching the movement, and just to... It just leads to the obvious question, what's it all about? You know, just seeing the dance of humanity, people doing what they're doing, making their buck, buying their food, flirting, you know, just the stuff that human beings arguing, haggling about prices and, you know, just that whole dance of life but being a relative outsider and just observing, oh, so this is life, this is human existence, so what's it about? That can be really conducive to the initial faith, which, like I mentioned in the guided sit, is often linked to humility. Knowing that we don't know can be a strong force of faith, like, I know that I don't know, but what I'm interested in knowing is this. See, it's like a, it's a step and well, maybe I'll have, maybe I'll develop, I'll notice, I'll cultivate by noticing like this respect for my experience. And you, we, we want to reject that, but we, we want to reject it because our experience feels so familiar, but it's our story about our experience that's so familiar. The present moment isn't familiar, but our story about the present moment is incredibly boring because it's basically been a riff off of the stories, we've, the story we've been telling ourselves about me, about life, about this moment. That's why when we just happen upon a moment that's relatively free of our interpretation. It's a little 
mind-blowing or astounding. We feel like we're on drugs or something because it seems so different when we're free of, you know, whatever. That's, I think, partly why some people like to travel because they don't, they don't have a repertoire of stories for their experience because they're in a new place doing new things. So that, so the moment is just more likely, it doesn't always, it isn't always that way, of course, but it, it may be more likely to be fresh, less mediated by our interpretation. This is Joseph writing about that. There's also a faith that we can have in the direction of our life's journey, a direction not in time or space, but in the dimension of our understanding. In the middle of the swirling mass of humanity, all busily engaged in the day's activity, often one feels directly the circular whirlwind nature of samsara. We are born, live out our lives, desiring, hoping, interacting, reacting accordingly, according to our conditioning, getting sick, getting old, ultimately dying. Questions arise in the mind, where is this all going? Is it leading onward in any way? And it's quite natural for us, and I certainly relate to this as a young adult, you know, 24, whatever I was, you know, what do people say about what to do with this life? Given that swirl, who has a, you know, just on that intellectual level, who has an intelligent, interesting response, right? And then we read or listen, and we check it out, hopefully. Joseph continues writing a little later. It is this journey of understanding ourselves that the swirling whirlwind of life takes on a deeper meaning. With faith in the process of deepening insight, Every aspect of our lives becomes our practice. There is no fragmentation or separation of practice in life. We do not have to live our lives motivated, motivated by fear or desire. We can appreciate each moment as a vehicle for developing wisdom. You know, and just to think about our day to day or our day evening coming up and tomorrow, it's like it could be for me more time of just acting out my desires and my aversions, or both are going to be the same outwardly, like I'll be in the same place, kind of doing the same thing. But is my faith in chasing, acting out my greed and aversion, or do I, can I cultivate by noticing the faith and the deepening of understanding. And this is, re- is, for me, really trustworthy about the Buddhist teachings because the awakening process depends on this existence, which is good because we have this existence. And there's probably nothing more miserable than having an existence and not wanting it. So we generally use this existence trying to make it better than it is and trying to get rid of the stuff that irritates us. Or we can use this existence to deepen understanding. 
And in a sense, this existence each of us are having moment by moment by moment, we can have faith that this is a perfect moment to deepen understanding. I don't need a different moment, different circumstance to deepen understanding. Like when my mind is acting out, that's a perfect moment to notice something about that acting out going on in the mind. A sort of, you know, irritation that might, or defensiveness or greediness that might be triggered and doing its thing. And to realize what that is, not what the mind presumes or projects that it is, but to see it for what it is, to see it as nature. To realize like uh, that sutta that Gil Fransdahl was talking about, to realize a non-dependence. So the mind, that particular psychological, emotional pattern has gotten triggered, and then to realize the non-grasping of that pattern. So there's that pattern and the non-grasping of it. There's the sadness and the non-grasping of it. There's the happiness and the non-grasping of it. So we still are a human being with an existence and we're either acting out, you know, the greediness and the aversiveness or we're using the moment because of faith that there's something to understand, right? And some pointing out instructions from the Buddha that it's about letting go of attachment, letting go of craving, letting go of grasping. We have everything we need. We need these moments. We need the attractions that we have and the irritations that we have and the conundrums that we have. We need this human life. Because a lot of people uh, misunderstand the Buddhist teachings because of the emphasis on sitting meditation practice. And they wrongly presume that, uh, boy, we'd be better off if we didn't have this human life. But it's so deeply embedded in the Buddhist teachings. No, no, no. This kind of existence is exactly what we need. Like if you haven't heard this, you know, the Buddha... It's nice to be in one of the, you know, imagine yourself in one of those celestial realms where you have a body of light and really amazingly refined pleasures for eons and eons of time. But there's not much learning. Like the, the teaching, the, in elite, whether you consider those myths or legends or realities, the different realms of existence, the point is, we need this sort of earthiness, this blend of pleasure and pain to wake up. We want to use this. And here's the kicker, because we don't really know, do we? Anybody familiar with all the realms of existence? No, probably not. I mean, it doesn't mean you haven't been there. Who knows? You're just not remembering. <laughs> At least I'm not. But what we can know is that it's skillful pragmatically skillful to presume that this life is perfect for the waking up that's possible. As messy as it is, as painful as it is, as overwhelming as it is at times, as boring as it is at times, 
it's just pragmatically skillful, like in terms of that building that factory, that, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh's simile of the, the five faculties becoming these five powers that generate this light, this discernment, this powerful insight, that liberating insight. It's really useful to live our life with the presumption that this life is totally workable. It's like a gift. Our experience, not theoretically, but our experience right now is a gift in support of awakening. That's a very skillful thought, a very skillful attitude to cultivate. As opposed to the opposite. I mean, when you say the opposite, it makes a lot of sense. Like, oh no, not this moment. Oh no, not this moment. I mean, that would be our whole life. It's like waiting for the right moment to practice, to get down to to work, you know, to actually be interested in my life, to bring some humility and interest to the moment. We keep putting it off. And it's, it's actually really part of Buddhist culture, you know, in different ways in a lot of the different Buddhist cultures over the centuries, there, beca- there has developed this very strong ideal of, you know, like what to do with this life is aim the mind, live a life where you cultivate a lot of good and you dedicate that merit to being born in some future existence when there's a Buddha, right? And I, you know, I'm not sort of belittling people with that attitude because, like I said, it's, it's a big part of Buddhism as it's evolved over the centuries in different places around the globe. This, like, can't do it here. I mean, that was so common at different times and still, you know, different places in the Buddhist world. Like, no way, you know? It's like uh, one of the suttas says, you know, hey, I'm somebody who really takes delight in sensuality. (laughs) I don't see a problem with sensuality, you know, because that's her attitude. It's like there's a lot of things to enjoy when you're privileged. And so it just makes sense. Well, I'll maybe check this stuff out later. So for homework and for the conversation in the small groups, remember I mentioned uh, last week, small groups, really central part of the, the work of being in the Buddhist studies class. And remember, you can always pass in the small groups, but just coming together of three or four people, having a conversation where everyone gets a chance to share for a couple minutes, or you can pass. And while someone is sharing... You're just in that receptive mode. You're not trying to take care of them by nodding. I mean, you can nod. It's not like it's wrong to nod. But you're just letting the person have their space. And you're, one way to do that is just really be in the experience of your body. It's actually a really good way to listen. You'll hear better when you're connected to your embodied experience. And so what you might talk about is your own relationship to faith or confidence in your life. What have you had? confidence in do you and not to be shy don't don't feel like you gotta speak the party line but you know what do you think about the buddha's awakening like do you think someone a human being can uh, respect their lived experience bring enough interest stability of present moment awareness 
to the lived experience of the body-mind, the way it actually is, in a way that profoundly shifts how that person is. Like the Buddha says, to be a human being with a life, an existence, but not dependent, not clinging to anything, but totally engaged. I mean, it's hard to imagine someone more engaged than 45 years the Buddha taught. I mean, he was all in. He did not hold back. You know, he didn't take days off. And uh, so it's not like, you know, he could say, well, boy, that's, you know, that person rejected human existence or something like that. And then the other thing is just to, uh, yeah, just to look at your own, um, you know, is there a need for a refuge? Because faith is related to a refuge, a sense of like, do I need a refuge? Do Am I looking for some a spiritual purpose, something to do with this life that feels trustworthy. And is there a refuge? Do I have any sense of what that refuge might be? And I know that this is kind of personal stuff, but it's really powerful to hear from people. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.